Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. It's Friday, February 14th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedust.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And I want to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com. They're a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And exclusively for listeners to this podcast, Audible has a great offer, a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. You can support the show and get a free audiobook just by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So, Chris, as you know, California is going through an historic drought at the moment. Some people say it's the worst in 500 years. And much of the produce that is eaten in our country actually comes from California, in particular, you know, the interior. And that's where people have been suffering from the drought the hardest. So it got me to thinking, as the climate changes and the world gets warmer, these droughts are probably going to increase in frequency. And of course, how we generate food is going to have to change. And I thought about what science might do to sort of navigate this problem. And then, of course, that led me to thinking about genetically modified foods. And genetically modified foods are something that a lot of us have misconceptions about, but there might be something that's really worth fearing, given that it's completely new technology. So I wanted to ask someone who's written a lot about GM foods recently, but who also comes at the problem with a bit of a skeptical nature. So I asked Steve Novella, who's a neurologist and a professor at Yale University and a well-known science communicator, what his thoughts are on GMOs. So I think part of the notion uh, and the, like, the fear and the propaganda against GMO is that it somehow is unnatural or we're altering the natural state of food, which you know I consider to be the naturalistic fallacy, sort of revering, quote unquote, what is natural to an unreasonable degree. But in fact, it isn't. It's it, it's there's nothing inherent, inherently good or virtuous about the way things were in nature, and we've been altering them beyond recognition for thousands of years anyway. That there's nothing it, there's nothing really new, special, or unique about genetic modification. So, Indre, I'm I'm cheering uh, to hear Steve say that, and I will just add my two cents. This idea that things that are unnatural are bad is such a dumb idea. It is historically dumb, and it has been refuted for a very long time, and I will just tell you how long and who has refuted it. William Shakespeare refuted it some 400 years ago in a work of fiction, The Winter's Tale, where he has a character say, and this is a quote from Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, Yet nature is made better by no mean, but nature makes that mean. So, in other words, you know, there's no thing <laughs> that nature makes that is unnatural, uh, and we are made by nature, so nothing we do is unnatural. So, fears of the unnatural are just wrong. Yeah, I love that you're quoting Shakespeare to support science. That's that's pretty awesome. And I and I do think that a lot of people have this misconceived notion that GM foods are responsible for all of the problems that industrial agriculture has created. And those two things are quite separate. Um, in fact, we've been genetically modifying our food, as as you'll hear Steve Novella say in the interview, for thousands of years, you know, by just selective breeding and other methods. Um, so 
in some ways, genetic modification is much more specific and it allows us to test the consequences of that kind of modification in a way that you can't do if you're just doing, you know, cross pollination or selective breeding or some other forms of modifying genetics in a plant. Mm -hmm. Totally. And let me just add for those who might want to now tell me I'm wrong, that uh, that doesn't mean that things that people do can't be bad. It just means that I wouldn't call them unnatural. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to be a great interview. But first, Andre, uh, let's talk about some things going on science in the news this week. And you've uh, got something to tell us about super aerodynamic skiing. Yeah, so last week we talked about how climate change is going to affect the ski season and the ability to actually go and ski. But I'm a skier and I always have been from when I was a little kid. And one of the things that's really prominent within the ski culture is gear. Everyone's really interested in the latest gear, the best new skis, you know, the coolest helmet, etc. And so I wanted to see what the Olympians are doing this year in terms of gear. And it turns out there's some pretty cool stuff. Um, One of the major issues in skiing, of course, is that when you win these races, you win them by like fractions of a second. So everything counts, every every turn, every everything counts. So the skiers have decided or have, have started to create really aerodynamic suits. And it turns out that for a lot of years, according to Popular Science magazine, the Europeans have had much more technically savvy suits than the Americans. So that maybe accounts for the times in which Europeans have beat us in skiing. So not to be outdone, the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association decided this year they're really going to tech up their suits. So in order to make these suits really aerodynamic, they decided to look to sharks and to mimic the ridges in the shark's skin to help reduce the amount of drag that these suits might create uh, when these skiers are going down the hills. And it turns out that they were able to, using these suits, decrease drag by 17% when they put these suits in a wind tunnel, which I think is kind of amazing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so they're actually doing lots of scientific experiments. So they, does that mean they're sending skiers through wind tunnels at high speeds? <laughs> I'm just trying to picture how they do this. Yeah. I don't know what's scarier, you know, the, the slalom or, or the wind tunnel. But yeah, it, you know, they do tons of this kind of testing, um, which of course is really interesting given that the vast majority of skiers are never going to use these suits. And it's a very specialized thing. But I think for the ski industry, it's really important for them to have an American winner particularly if they can say, you know, it's part of, part of the gear is what helped this person win. Well, I just want to know why the United States is behind in ski science technology. And I wonder if that has anything to do with, you know, our investments in science. So Yeah, but it also begs the question of, you know, is, is this fair? <laughs> you know, you know, because um, in, in swimming, for example, those super aerodynamic suits have been banned in a lot of events because they seem to give people a, too much of an advantage. So anyway, so we'll see how how these suits do and whether that actually gets us a gold medal. Fascinating. And thank you for sharing that with us. And yes, I hope that the sharks on the slopes are victorious. Uh, So, Andre, once every two years, there's an event that those of us who are complete geeks about public understanding of science or science communication, we wait ever so impatiently for this event. The event is the release of the National Science Foundation's Science and Engineering Indicators Report. And what this is, it's basically a huge grab bag of any kind of fact you can pretty much think of about anything uh, related to U.S. science. So you've got like comparisons of how many PhDs we produce versus China, which countries produce the most scientific papers, earn the most patents. It's just voluminous. You can hardly, you know, take it all in. But in the report is chapter seven, and that's what tracks the public in science, what Americans think. So the report just came out, and of course, I went straight to Chapter 7. That's what I do. There is some good stuff. There is some bad stuff, some bad news in there. There's also some just notable stuff. Let's start with the bad. It turns out that Americans are believing more in astrology, or more specifically, they are less skeptical of astrology. There has been a decrease in just a two-year period from 2010 to 2012, which is the last year they have data for, a decrease of 7% in the number of Americans who say correctly that astrology is not at all scientific. So that was something that I found a little annoying, and I know that a lot of people feel likewise. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of amazing to me. And part of me just wonders if it isn't people are just thinking that astrology might be true, but do they really think it's science? That that seems really odd to me. 
No, and if you look at the numbers, people who are aged 18 to 24, um, they get three categories in these questions. They say one of the categories is not at all scientific. It's the only possible correct answer. But then there is also a very scientific category and a sort of scientific category. And if you take that age group, 18 to 24, more than half are either in the very or the sort of scientific category. So this is like a doozy. This is bad. Wow, I, I want to put my head on my desk right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, I want to slam a wall or something. So uh, here's here's something that's less enraging from the report, and there's a million things in this report, but certainly fascinating. So we always lament the really low percentage of Americans who, in surveys, basically say they don't believe in evolution. And what they usually get asked in the surveys is whether they agree that, quote, human beings as we know them today developed from earlier species of animals. They should be saying that's true because that's what science knows is true. So according to NSF, they point out that only 48% of people agree with that statement in the way that they should. But what's interesting is that the report says something very striking happens if you alter the statement. If you preface it with the words, according to the theory of evolution, and then you say human beings as we know them today developed from earlier species of animals, then you get 72% agreement. So it jumps, it jumps by over 20 percentage points. And what this shows is that, you know, you might think that they are very wrongheaded, but the evolution deniers are not ignorant. They do know which theory they are in denial of and what it says. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. But I also like the fact that only, or I didn't like the fact, I should say, that only about 50% of people in the U.S. knew that antibiotics don't kill viruses, you know. And, oh, and is that, that in there too? Yeah, yeah. They always ask that one and people always flub it. Yep. I mean, it's just amazing to me. That's, that's the worst than any other country that they've, that they've queried. And, and that just makes me so sad because we've done so much writing and talking about antibiotics and that they're just, you know, that, they're, that they're not, they have nothing to do with killing viruses. Yeah, and this is, of course, going to have big consequences if people are popping antibiotics when they have viruses, which we know that, unfortunately, they are. They're begging their doctors for them, right? Yeah. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Steve Novella. This week's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from, topics ranging from science to classics to politics. They let you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. My life is busier than ever and I hate to waste time, but Audible lets you take boring things like grocery shopping or commuting and make them productive by letting you listen to a book at the same time. And as a listener to Inquiring Minds, you can get an audiobook for free just by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And it's not just books. Audible has a bunch of lectures for nerds like us, too. In fact, they have two lecture series by our guest this week, Stephen Novella, including one called Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills, and more important than everything else, in my humble opinion, they also have a lecture series that I recently released called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. You can get all 24 lectures in that series for free. So look, here's what you ought to do. After the show, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and download your free audiobook or series of lectures. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Steve Novella. Thanks for having me, Andre. I wanted to start out the conversation by asking you about the skeptical movement and what led you to become such a big part of it. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, the skeptical movement is all about science and critical thinking in a nutshell. I mean, the, the people who are active in the movement uh, love science. Uh, a lot of us are science communicators. Uh, some of us are actual scientists. And uh, But in addition to just not just regular science, but also combining that with critical thinking, things like logic and mechanisms of deception. You know, why do people end up believing things that are not true all the time? The fallacies and weaknesses and foibles of human cognition and memory and perception. Uh, so you combine all of that and then we, we, we end up spending a lot of our time doing a deep dive on common myths, things that people believe that aren't true, trying to figure out why they believe them and demonstrating why they're not true, and then also figuring out the best way to communicate that to as many people as possible. So to that end, I wanted to talk to you today about some of the myths that are related to our appreciation and our use of food. Given what's happening with our climate today, a lot of people are arguing that we need to move towards a local, sustainable, and organic model for our food production and consumption. 
But for a lot of us, that also means that food is going to get more expensive. And given that there's already a major hunger problem and our population is growing, what we need to look to science and we, we also need to consider the role of industrial agriculture if we're going to be feeding all of the hungry mouths in our future. Now, there are a lot of people who claim that industrial agriculture has a lot of problems and that we really should be moving away from that. So I wanted to start out first by asking you, what do you think is the most negative aspect of industrial agriculture right now? And are there any myths that we need to debunk in order to make the right decisions about where we get our food? Oh, I mean, it's, it, it's rife with myths. Almost everything I hear about it is a myth. I mean, it's such an emotional issue and, and highly ideological and politicized issue that what I find is that most of what people write and say and believe about it just fits into some narrative, some worldview. And it's, it's not very factual or evidence-based. Or you, know, you run into issues like economics. I mean, you could talk to a conservative and a, and a liberal economist about the, working from the same set of data with the same, within the same field, and they come to completely opposite conclusions, meaning that their ideological bent or biases overwhelms whatever facts there are that deal with this issue. Um, so... Uh, you know, I've taken a, a very close uh, and deep look at a lot of these issues. Some, you know, for those that um, overlap with health claims, you know, I tend to, to focus there because I'm a physician, so that's kind of close to my area of expertise. But um, even just agricultural claims that aren't health claims, just as a, a skeptic and science communicator, trying to find out, well, where is the truth here? What's the actual information? And boy, you have to wade through a lot of misinformation and distortion to, to find out what's really going on. And from what I've sort of seen of the internet, I think probably the most, uh, most of the conversations surround GMOs, so genetically modified organisms. And that's something that you've written about quite extensively. So I first want to start out with, you know, there's, a, there's even a misconception of what constitutes a GMO, because of course, we've been changing the genetics of our seeds and our produce for hundreds of years using selective breeding, for example. Well, for thousands of years, really. Thousands of years. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about how we can change the genes in different, um, different produce or different seeds and where the GMO label comes in. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, genetic modification is really just uh, the latest in a long you know, history of humans altering the plants and animals that we eat. This does go back thousands of years, uh, just you know, making hybrids and uh, cultivation, selecting the you know the the best seeds from one year to plant the next year. You can do that thousands of times, and you can completely alter the the way plants look, their nutritional content, uh, you know how they taste, etc. So everything, pretty much, that people eat today has been transformed beyond recognition from what it was uh, as it evolved in nature. So I think part of the notion uh, and the, like the fear and the propaganda against GMO is that it somehow is unnatural or we're altering the natural state of food, which you know I consider to be the naturalistic fallacy, sort of revering, quote unquote, what is natural to an unreasonable degree. But in fact, it isn't. It's, it, it's, there's nothing inherent, inherently good or virtuous about the way things were in nature, and we've been altering them beyond recognition for thousands of years anyway. There's nothing, it, there's nothing really new, special, or unique about genetic modification. A couple of other uh, more recent techniques that you, know, you, you almost never hear about in the public discussions, which I find very interesting. One is called mutation breeding, where farmers actually use chemicals or, or radioactivity in order to uh, speed up the occurrence of mutations in the plants, and then they... Uh, they breed the most favorable ones that occur. Uh, in this way, um, they're sort of just speeding up, speeding up the cultivation process. And, you know, over 2,000 plants that are the product of, of this mutation breeding have been released, uh, you know, to the public in the last, uh, in the last 100 years. So in, now, GMO is the, the, or the genetic modifications, the technology of taking one or more genes and putting them directly into the genome of a plant or animal. Uh, so it's much more um, precise. 
because uh, you know you're not in a, in a hybrid. You're going to mix in a hundred or two hundred genes for genetic uh, for mutation breeding. Just whatever ha- mutations happen to occur is what you're, you're just hoping to select for the ones that that show up. This way, you could take, for example, a gene from a bacteria that's producing uh, a pesticide, and you could put it into corn, like BT corn, and it it will produce that that pesticide. Um, so it's very very specific. But we do have to divide GM technology into two broad types. Uh, there's transgenic and cisgenic. Cisgenic means you're taking a gene from a closely related plant, that the kind of thing that could have happened through through cultivation anyway. And transgenic, which is the thing that gets people upset and you know bring out terms like frankenfood, is uh, when you're taking a gene from a a remote kingdom of life, like you know from a bacteria and putting it into a plant, something that could never happen with cultivation. So GM technology is definitely new in that it is a much more powerful technology, uh, but it's it's not new in that we've been altering the genes of the plants that we eat for thousands of years. So in some ways, though, one could argue that by picking only a specific gene or a specific even part of, of a gene and and targeting that, uh, we're in some ways limiting the unknown. Um, whereas if we're sort of just using cross-pollination or selective breeding, or even what sounds pretty nefarious to me, this mutation breeding, we don't know what the other effects of the other genes that you know also enter that plant might be. Yeah, I mean, it's, all, it's a trade-off. Uh, you're right in that we're making very f- uh, much fewer changes, and they're, they're targeted changes. Uh, on the other hand, you know, genetics is complicated, and there certainly can be unanticipated consequences of you know slipping a gene into a genome that has settled down uh, into a certain stability. Um, but these haven't cropped up. I mean, we've been doing this for decades now, and there's been tons of studies looking at the results of genetic modification, and you know we're we're not producing these um, you know scary monsters. You know this so-called Frankenfood just hasn't happened. So uh, sure, there could be unanticipated consequences, but it just hasn't, uh, in practice, turned out to be a huge issue so far. So, what do we know about the safety of GMO food? GM foods have been studied uh, again for for several decades. This, to me, is the easiest question to answer. What's the what's the health effects, or are are there any health dangers to GM foods? And the, the short answer is no. I mean, it's they really have been studied more than any other food. You know, you can put a hybrid, new hybrid species with hundreds of new genes and really unpredictable effects on the market with no testing. But you put one gene in a plant, and then you have to go through a lot of regulatory hoops. So, I, which I think is fine. I think it's a good idea that we carefully test. It's a new technology. We want to carefully test these foods. Um, but when that's done, we show that they're, they're essentially equivalent in, in terms of their health effects to the, the, the more uh, wild type or native plants. Uh, the, the one very legitimate concern is that whenever you introduce a new protein to the human food chain, that could provoke allergies. So they need to be tested to see if there's new allergens in there. But that hasn't happened um, and, uh, you know, there's been many feeding trials where, you know, like genetically modified corn or whatever is fed to animals. And then we look to see, is there any untoward health effects? These studies have all been reviewed and to date, um, you know, the, the reviews conclude pr- pretty universally that there's just no health risk to GMO. Okay, so if they're safe to eat, one of the other major criticisms of, of GM food is that they destroy our environment that it's not sustainable agriculture. So is there any is that is that a myth or is there some truth to that statement? Uh it it's it's not even the right question to ask. I mean it's like not even wrong. It's one of those situations where um GM is not agriculture and it, it's not doing anything to agriculture. It is a tool. The real question is how is it being used? Uh, and it, this is a very complicated question now because when you're talking about sustainable agriculture, there's no one factor here. So let's take, for example, um, BT uh, genetic modified organisms, organisms like BT cotton or BT corn. Uh, that the BT refers to a, a pesticide that is uh, comes from a bacteria. In fact, it, BT is used in organic farming as a pesticide, and the purpose of this is to reduce the farmer's need to use other pesticides because the plant will be inherently resistant to pests and therefore it will, it will increase yield in that 
uh, there'll be less of a loss to to pests. And and it works. There's no question that it works. However, the downside is that if you plant all of your fields with BT corn, you're creating a pretty significant selective pressure to for pests to develop resistance to to that in that pesticide. Um, so if you use it in a very um, stupid way, you know, in a not a sustainable way, then it becomes counterproductive in the long term. But there's nothing inherent to BT corn or BT crops that says you have to use them in the worst possible way. If you use them as part of an overall sustainable agricultural approach, meaning you mix some non-BT crops in there, you use other pesticides, so you're not relying on just a single pesticide, then it becomes a ver- one powerful tool in a, in a, a box of tools that you're using, that farmers are using in a way that optimizes both, you know, their profitability and efficiency, and their their investment of time and resources, et cetera, plus also is sustainable. You know, they're not you know breeding resistant uh, pests that are then going to devastate their crops in the future. So if you're just focusing on GM, you're missing the big picture in that you have to look at farming as a as a practice of which genetic modification is just one tool. So often we conflate industrial agriculture, genetic modification, those two ideas and as one and the same. Um, but instead, what you're saying is that the problem really is when we try to do monoculture agriculture. So, you know, we overplant one product uh, over many, many fields, and then that over time destroys the soil. Whereas if we were wanted to be the, our, the agriculture should be sustainable. We, we should really diversify what we plant in any given location. But we should be using GM foods if they are beneficial to the land. Is that is that is that what you mean? Well, it's it's yeah. Essentially, I mean, the GM is one tool. It's not the only one we have. We shouldn't over rely on it. We shouldn't apply it as a simplistic solution to what is a very complicated problem. I mean, you know, think about what we're trying to do here. We're trying to get a lot of food out of as little land as possible, you know, we're really pushing the whole process of growing crops to to its limits. Uh, and in it, we're by necessity, we're generating selective pressures to resist anything that we're trying to do, you know, whether it's herbicide, you're going to breed herbicide resistance in plants, and, and in, with the use pesticide, you're going to breed pesticide resistance. These are old problems. They are not new or unique to GM. Monoculture is an old problem. It is not new or unique to GM. Uh, one, the worst you could say is that you know, having these like superstar genetically modified plants may create a perverse incentive for monoculture because then everybody wants to use the most profitable best seeds. And that, that's, that's probably fair. But again, that's not a problem with GM. That's a problem with how it gets used. Um, I do think that we need to you know, move as far away from monoculture as we can. I mean, that's just if you have, again, one crop of one variety, one cultivar, you're just waiting to get to get wiped out by a blight. It's just going to ha- it's going to happen eventually. So it's just not a good practice with or without GM. And, you know, even again before GM monoculture was 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 a big issue. It's just not good practice to rely on very very few varieties and species. We want to you know spread our our eggs out among as many baskets as possible. Well, there's also this idea out there that the major corporations behind GM foods, like Monsanto, for example, really encourage, in some ways, this monoculture. They they overhype their seeds, which gets a lot of people, a lot of farmers, to buy them. Um, and they seem to be targeting small farmers and making it more difficult for them to make a living. Um, what are the myths associated, or the truths associated, with this view of corporations that um, or, or major manufacturers of GM foods? Yeah, so I found in in this area when you're talking about the behavior of the big seed companies, and you know Monsanto has for whatever reason become the poster boy for the big evil you know seed corporations. That this is where the I found the most uh, deeply ingrained myths in just about everything that I read on uh, anti-GMO websites or, or or papers about Monsanto turned out when I dug down deep into the story, turned out to be wrong, or at least a significant distortion of what's going on. Um, it, it's probably fair to say that companies overhype their products. Sure, doesn't every company overhype their product or service? I mean, that's sort of the baseline. We just assume that that's what they're doing. 
but farmers are professionals. You know, they're not dumb. They they have a lot of their own incentives to do what's best for their farm and you know for their family or their corporation. And uh, they're not just going to buy a salesman's pitch hook, line, and sinker. Uh, there's there are, there are lots of well written articles by farmers describing you know all the things that they go through in deciding what seeds to plant, et cetera, et cetera. And the notion that they're just simplistically following corporate commercials is, is kind of insulting and absurd. You know, they have they take a lot into consideration as well. So sure, um, the seed companies overhype their products, and and you shouldn't believe everything that you're that you're told by a salesman. Absolutely, uh, but in practice. You know, between regulation and farmers looking out for their own interests, it's a much more complicated story. And uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't insult all farmers by saying that they're that they're so dumb that they just listen to corporate hype uncritically. So there's also this idea that because we're so good at making, you know, pesticide resistant uh, seeds or even getting rid of the pests that hit up our farms, that we're actually you know, destroying the diversity of our insects. So for example, Monsanto has been blamed for the decline in monarch butterflies. Uh, do you, did you see any evidence in your, in your, or have you looked at this issue, um, this, this idea that the biodiversity is being affected by some of these superstar GM foods? Yeah, so I have, I have. And, and what I found was that the uh, decrease in, in insect diversity is a problem that predates uh, genetic modified crops that have pesticides in them. Uh, in fact, the situation was getting worse and worse over years because of just of use of pesticides. Again, we were organic and, and conventional farmers use pesticides. You can't farm without them. Otherwise, you end up with a field that's just a grocery store for pests. I mean, you, you know, I don't know if you ever do any backyard gardening. There are certain things you cannot plant without some kind of pesticide or otherwise it's just it's just mush is what you get in the end so um this the, the situation was actually getting worse cuz the the um before the introduction of of certain gm uh products because the uh, insecticides were reducing insect diversity including predators on the pests and therefore the pest problem got worse which required the use of more pesticide which made the problem worse and uh, I've actually read several articles, including by farmers, saying that because of the increased uh, options that genetic modified uh, crops have, have offered, that this process is now being reversed into the good direction, that they're able to use less pesticide. It's increasing insect diversity in farms, and which, which is making the situation better and better. Now, of course, you don't want to just rely upon the one strategy and the one, like one product, like a BT crop, as your only pesticide solution, because that will eventually breed resistance and then not work. But again, if you're using it in an intelligent way as part of an overall strategy, it's actually making the situation better, not worse. So one of the other criticisms of GMO plants is that if you develop a plant that is resistant to herbicides, then you can actually use more toxic herbicides to kill the weeds around it. Is this a valid concern? Well, this is a similar question as uh, like with the pesticide issue in that um, if it's if the herbicide resistant so-called Roundup Ready uh, plants are used as your only simplistic solution uh, then that that's just going to breed resistance and you're going to over-rely upon one herbicide. Uh, but if you use it as part of an overall sustainable strategy, then it's again, it's a very powerful tool. But there, there are trade-offs here. It's not like there's any one good solution. And if you're farming, you have to deal with weeds. You can't just let your weeds completely take over your crop. So what do you do? Traditionally, farmers would till the soil. Tilling the soil, you know, to get gets uh, before you plant will uh, reduce the amount of weeds that come up but tilling the soil is terrible for the soil it it releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere it destroys a lot of the organics in the soil so it's it's really not a good idea to rely heavily on on tillage um using herbicide allows you to 
reduce or eliminate tilling the soil. So there's a huge advantage in that. Uh, also, it, the one advantage, it's not as if without um, Roundup-ready crops that farmers weren't using herbicide. It was just much more labor-intensive. They would have to spray individual um, weeds rather than just spraying the crop and knowing that their crops would be resistant. So it's just much more, you know, many um, person hour, you know, labor-intensive for the farmers. Um, but if they rely solely on one herbicide and one strategy, then it's not going to be sustainable. So again, you have to do maybe minimal tilling, but not no tilling and use multiple herb, uh, herbicides, not just one and use crops, some of which are herbicide resistant, some of which are not. And if you use it, that, that kind of a strategy you end up getting the best results. You, you're sort of minimizing the downside of the various options that farmers have. But there's no one perfect solution. You know, that there's no, it's not as if there's this good perfect solution out there and that, you know, uh, farmers are ignoring it in favor of using uh, Roundup because it's easy. Uh, it's, you, there's trade-offs no matter what you do, and it's just a matter of balancing them. So we get back to this idea that monoculturalism is bad, and we should really stick to diversifying our fields. Diversifying our fields and our strategies. You know, just don't use any one strategy. Just to spread it around so to try to minimize resistance and uh, to try to minimize the, the downsides that any one strategy would have. And again, you know, generally speaking, you know, farmers know this and, and do it. Uh, so I'm not saying that we have achieved universal best practices in agriculture, but I think that's what where we should try to move. And again, that doesn't, but you know, the, the criticisms of GM though usually are very simplistic, like, oh, it's going to increase the use of herbicide. Well, not necessarily. And the other options aren't great either. It's complicated. Uh, and it's the, we need a complicated multifaceted solution, you know, so it's GM largely is tangential to a lot of these these issues. It's just, you know what I mean? It's not like GM is, is, it's not the panacea, nor is it a menace. It's just one more tool that has to be used intelligently. So I want to just uh, talk a little bit about the nomenclature that we talk about. When we talk about organic farming, for example, we, we talk about, we, we assume it means without the use of pesticides. But in some ways, using GM foods, which seem to be at odds with the idea of it being organic, would decrease the need for pesticides. So is there going to be a time or is it possible now for foods that are GM to be labeled organic? Well, I mean, the organic labeling is totally arbitrary. It, I am actually have always been against it because it is a false dichotomy. It's this artificial label that's used for marketing purposes. Uh, and they've, you know, if you actually look at the history of it, which, you know, isn't completely relevant to the way it's used today, but I mean, it actually started out as a very, not just like a naturalistic fallacy, but also there was a lot of mysticism in it, like, you know, planting under the full moon and things like that, burying the, horns of deer in your field. So that's kind of so there's a lot of very mystical roots of the organic movement. But if you look at it today, they've kind of co-opted the notion of sustainability, but sustainable farming is sustainable farming. You know, everyone's in favor of that. There's nothing uniquely uh, that's not uniquely organic or unique to organic farming. Um, they don't allow for GM uh, crops at this point in time. They don't allow for things like irradiation of, uh, of food, which you know has nothing to do with anything else in, in agriculture and to me doesn't make any sense. So it's just a suite of practices um, that that based, as far as I could tell, only on the naturalistic fallacy on what feels natural, but it's not necessarily, and then they call it sustainable, but it's not necessarily best sustainable practices because they're actually limiting their tools and, and eliminating ones that could actually be more sustainable or better for the environment. So organic farmers will use pesticide, just only quote-unquote natural pesticides, not chemical pesticides. Are natural pesticides better than chemical pesticides? We have absolutely no reason to believe that they are. And there are, there are plenty of studies which show that organic farmers have to apply more pesticide with a greater negative impact on the environment in order to get the same effect on their crops. So they're not using the best pesticide. They're just using those that are quote-unquote natural. That is not a rational or evidence-based approach, in my opinion. It's an ideological approach, which does, is not going to give you the best outcome. So I think it's very counterproductive at the end of the day, um, the whole organic movement. I think that what we need to have is an evidence-based, sustainable agricultural movement. 
Well, so on this issue of labeling, I think it's kind of interesting that Monsanto on its website actually calls itself a sustainable agriculture company. Mm -hmm. So what is sustainable agriculture? What does it mean? Oh, I mean, you know, the, the, I think that the uh, it's pretty self-explanatory in that it's agriculture that where we're not using up limited resources. You know, we're not uh, poisoning the environment to the point where we're going to either destroy the quality of the soil or, you know, one big problem, for example, with modern agriculture is nitrogen runoff into the Gulf of Mexico, which then causes algae blooms, which then causes these dead zones of very low oxygen. Um, so... You know, if you have increasing problems, uh, then that's not sustainable. If sustainability means that we're at homeostasis with the environment, you know, our land use, uh, the, with uh, we're not generating resistance, you know, to a worse and worse degree, et cetera. So it's again, it's very tricky. It's very challenging to grow enough food to eat. Um, we can do it now, but we're doing it, you know, with major industrial uh, methods and, um, you know, our population is growing. So uh, either we need to cut down more and more forests, which isn't a good thing, uh, or we need to get more and more food from the same amount of land, which is going to require creative solutions. And I think it's going to require solutions where everything is on the table. I don't think we should, you know artificially limit our choices on ideological grounds. Well, and there's an argument to be made that in the future, it's actually going to become even more difficult as our climate changes in ways that we can't always predict. And we lose farmland uh, to global warming. So the next step then is to make the food that we do grow more nutritious. And that's something that I think science has a real place in. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this idea that over time, actually, the nutritional content of our produce has decreased. I've seen that idea floating around the internet quite a bit too. Um, in particular, superfoods like spinach uh, these days apparently are not nearly as nutritious as we think they are. Is there any truth to those statements? There is some truth to those statements. Those statements, yes, there there have been major studies looking tracking nutritional content uh, over the decades uh, of various produce, and it has decreased. But having said that, only about less, fewer than half of I think it was six out of fourteen. That's just a little bit less than half, something like that, of the of the nutritional parameters that were followed decreased. The rest stayed the same. Um, the amount that they decreased was actually pretty modest in most cases. On average, it was just you know five to ten percent. A couple of things more than that, but most of the time, most of the parameters, the, the amount of decrease was not very much at all. Um, so it's actually not a huge problem when you look at it. There's a there were uh, a very interesting question of well, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Some you know I think some people knee jerk blame the environment, the soil is not as good, but there's really no evidence to support that. Um, I think the the authors who did the, those studies, their their uh, suggestion is probably accurate in that as we and this again, this is a, an issue that doesn't have anything directly to do with genetic modification. That as we've cultivated plants that ship better, that have a longer shelf life, that look more appealing on the store shelf, that essentially are more profitable for farmers, those are not always necessarily the most nutritious varieties. So we've sacrificed nutrition and flavor for shelf life and shelf appeal. That is probably enough to explain this actually fairly modest decrease in overall nutritional value in the produce that we have. Um, but it's, it's you know we, we actually have access to a lot more produce year round than we've ever had before, so that's it more than offsets that the fact that there may have, in some parameters there may have been a little bit of a decrease in the total nutritional value, uh, and it, it's easily reversed too. All we got to do is just you know uh, eat more. And that, this is where I think the eat locally thing comes in. There's nothing really especially beneficial about eating locally, except for I think the real benefit is that you are then might be eating so-called heirloom varieties, which are have inherently better nutrition because they weren't selected for their ability to be shipped across the country. Right. So we should, you know, get over our aversion to ugly produce. And if, if we are at an organic market, not shy away from things that might look ugly, but that probably have greater nutritional value than something that looks pretty and is in your grocery store. Sure. You know, if you have the wherewithal to have your own garden, you know, stuff tastes great from your garden, partly because what you're what you're growing is 
is, are better varieties. Uh, the local farmers had to have the option of growing stuff that they could pick and sell at the farmer's market that day. They don't have to ship it. Uh, but I think the, uh, um, you know, it prob- probably can't feed the world doing this. You know, I think we need agricultural, uh, you know, big uh, industrialized farming in order to just to produce enough food. And there are solutions here too. I think if it's, this is just a matter of the priorities, the, the, those farmers, uh, and and those seed companies, et cetera, that are cultivating plants, cultivated them with a high priority towards things like shelf life, if they just simply adjust their priorities and start producing, first of all, more cultivars, so f- fewer reliance on monoculture, and that they reintroduce a priority towards uh, things like nutritional content, then uh, that we could easily reverse this trend that we've seen in the last few decades. And in your research on the latest advancements in food science, what is it that you're most excited about? I mean, I've heard about golden rice and sort of other food that seems to be more nutritionally beneficial for us. What are some of the things that you find to be particularly compelling? Yeah, so I mean, the golden rice to me is a home run for genetic modification, which I think is why um, the anti-GMO crowd opposes it. And they, they have yet to put forward what a single argument that I find compelling or reasonable. I think they just don't like the idea that GM has produced something that actually is good. Um, so golden rice is rice that contains the genes to produce uh, beta carotene, uh, which is a precursor to vitamin A. And it took a little bit longer than they thought it was going to take in order to get the levels to the to, to the point where there actually makes a, a nutritional difference. But they have they they're pretty much there. They're, it's ready for field testing. The testing that has been done, you know, a recent 2012 study showed that um, you know one bowl of golden rice could give a child 60 percent of their vitamin A need for the day. That's huge. That can make a huge impact, positive effect for uh, children around the world. You know, vitamin A deficiency and blindness and death secondary to it are a huge problem. Um, and this golden rice is one solution that uh, could have a huge impact. doesn't have to be our, the only thing that we do. There are other solutions as well that are already in effect, but and they're helping, but not enough. So we need more, and, and golden rice is more. And there's plenty of opportunities. I mean, I think while I think the, the GM products that we've seen so far, while some of them are useful, I think that uh, the potential for the future is so much greater. Golden rice really just being the fir- really the first one that could potentially come on the market that is a nutritional enhancement. But there are others out there. There's a genetically modified version of the black tomato, which has increased flavonoids, for example. Uh, the idea, the, the, the ability to just put in genes into plants that produce more nutrients is a perfect application of genetic modification. Um, and then beyond that, uh, the, the two that I've read about uh, potential applications of genetic modification that could have a huge impact. One is, um, you know, some plants have the ability to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere. Other plants, including most of our crops and our cereals, um, you have to, they have to get their nitrogen from the soil. And that's why we have to use lots of nitrogen-based fertilizer. And this is a major problem with, with uh, uh, conventional farming. Uh, but imagine if we can put the genes into corn or wheat so that they can fix their own nitrogen from the atmosphere, and then suddenly we don't have to put nitrogen fertilizer on those crops anymore. That would have a huge benefit to the environment, a huge boost to food production, reduction in costs. I mean, the benefits would be amazing. And then the other one uh, that I've read about that I found is really uh, exciting is the is the potential to in- increase the efficiency of the photosynthetic pathways in in crops. So some plants we already have, we've identified plants that have more efficient photosynthesis than some of our big uh, crops. So if we could optimize photosynthesis, we could right there boost yields 20% without doing anything else. Um, So again, that increasing yields in that way would reduce land use, would be better for the environment, et cetera, et cetera. So that's tremendous, tremendous potential. Of course, we don't know exactly how this is all going to play out in the future. It's kind of like talking about stem cells or any kind of exciting new technology. We don't know how it's going to play out, but you certainly don't want to eliminate it on ideological grounds before we even see what its potential is. 
Well, that sounds pretty exciting to me. And so I'm going to invite my listeners to follow up with some of your ideas by following your blog, uh, Neurologica. Listeners can find it at thenessscom slash Neurologica blog. Steve Novella, thanks so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It's been a pleasure. So, Indra, I'm very with Steve on GMOs. I think I already made that clear. I just want to add that according to a statement by the board of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and I quote, the science is clear, crop improvement by the modern techniques of biotechnology is safe. I will say, uh, it's important to note, there are some critics out there who accept that science um, especially on GMO safety to humans, but they do have a broader disagreement about the role of GMOs as a corporate product in the future of agriculture, and they make that distinction. Uh, and that, you know, I agree, that's a different argument. It's a more nuanced argument, and it's one that certainly can be made. Yeah, but even, you know, even the major provider of seeds, Monsanto, who that's often considered, you know, the, the evil behind GMOs, they they consider themselves a sustainable company because what they're trying to do is create seeds that are going to require the use of fewer pesticides. So, you know, it really is about how you use these technologies, not the technologies themselves, and maybe not even, I mean, the the you know, every corporation wants to make money, that's their goal, but create the product itself is not evil. It's just how we use it. And I will just say that I continue to be befuddled by the fact that it seems like all of this anti-GMO stuff comes from the political left, and yet every time you try to do a survey to establish that, you fail to find <laughs> that it's uniquely on the political left. So let's uh, let's keep that in mind as well. This is a this is a a view that is you know pretty much not accepting the science, but it's not clear exactly where it springs from, and it might be as much about this feeling icky about things that are deemed unnatural as about a left-right ideology. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that isn't to say that, you know, all all of the uses of GM are are going to make the environment a better place. And, and there are definitely issues. But yeah, so fundamentally, we have to get down to, you know, what does the science tell us? And how do we use it in a way that is actually sustainable, and that doesn't create a huge problem for the environment? Right. It goes back to that famous quote that I think is from Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Sorry. Exactly. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And please remember that this show is sponsored by Audible.com, and as a listener to our podcast, they're offering you a free audiobook. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash Inquiring Minds for your free audiobook download. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, which is a journalistic collaboration that brings together The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.